Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. Man, oh man, it has been a week. It's been wild. It's, it's been crazy. Uh, if your iPhone screen time wasn't averaging 6+, plus, then you've been doing it wrong. To me, the, the second half of 2020 has been all about the changing of the guard and getting the gatekeepers to GTFO. Uh, for today's episode, I wanted to frame that idea around beverage journalism, because for a long time, the only place to get reliable wine news was through a couple of magazines and newsletters. We're talking Robert Parker's Wine Advocate, we're talking the Wine Spectator, and maybe like a wine column in a food magazine or newspaper. But in the past decade, there's been this explosion of other great places to read about booze. There are these fun little zines like Pipette and Glue Glue, as well as websites like Punch, and I think these guys are bringing a different voice, which in turn inspires a different type of drinker, or at least it's a drinker that didn't feel like they were being spoken to before. Um, So to dig into this idea of kind of the democratization of kind of wine media or just booze journalism in general, I wanted to bring in an old friend, Rachel Del Rocco Terrasas, who is a freelance wine spirits and travel writer. Rachel currently serves as the managing editor for The Vintner Project, which is a collaborative media outlet featuring beverage writers with diverse backgrounds sharing their expertise in an approachable way. I think that if you visit The Vintner Project's website and read a few of the stories, you'll get a sense of that kind of vibrant and eclectic community. In the past, I've always told people that the best way to learn about beverages is to just talk to their local bartender or sommelier, but those kind of primary source interactions are harder and harder to come by with the hospitality shutdowns that are going on across the country. So with this isolation, I think that media is more important than ever. So I wanted to chat with Rachel, who has a long and illustrious career as a bartender and sommelier here in Texas uh, before she moved to New York, taking a job writing for Wine and Spirits magazine. While there, she was the spirits critic, writing all the spirits reviews. So we start the episode kind of talking about uh, whiskey and gins, and we work our way into kind of the wine industry. And so we'll just go ahead and get started. Here's Rachel. We've been here for like three years now, which is crazy. Did you stay in the tri-state area when shit was really popping off in Mm -hmm. March and April? Or did you skedaddle? Oh, we stayed here. We locked down. Locked it down. Locked it down. Didn't do much. Hung out inside. (laughs) Took some walks around the block. Yeah, didn't do a lot. Your parents are up there too, right? They moved actually. They were here and they were the reason why I... They were the reason why I came back. And you were the reason they left. They're like, Rachel's coming back in town. We got to get out. (laughs) Exactly. And then they retired and moved down to South Carolina. Um, But the rest of my family, I grew up in New Jersey. So the rest of my family is about like 45 minutes away. So I have like aunts and uncles and family. It still feels like home, which is nice. Well, that's good. Did you go anywhere over the summer? Did you guys? We took one trip up to Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that where went... you wrote that uh, Maine lobster roll article? No, surprisingly not. I had no. <laughs> that was came before, and then I went okay. again. Um, but um, we went to Portland a few years ago, and then. We went up to Maine. We went to Acadia National Park. So we were outdoors. Maine allowed New Jerseyans in. That's <laughs> kind of the thing that I missed about being up in this area versus Texas is that you can drive like five hours and be somewhere. <laughs> Not still be in the same state or if the traffic's bad, the same city. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> It always does blow my mind whenever I go back up to the Northeast. It's like you go 45 minutes to an hour and there's a huge change in terrain or you're in another state and there's none yeah. of that here. So. Or another country. It's only like eight yeah. hours to Canada. Oh, I didn't even I'm, think of that. I'm keeping that in my back pocket. Are we allowed in Canada right now? No. Are we even allowed up there? No. No. So, so I'm actually, <laughs> this is, I am actually, my grandmother is from Canada. So mm. I have been doing some major research on generational citizenship. <laughs> <laughs> 
dude, yeah. Snag that. Yeah. Couldn't well, hurt. It it definitely would not hurt at all. That would be a good thing to have. And um I don't know, and they're making cool wine up there, so it would be cool if you had they citizenship are. to like be up there, you know, see what's going on in Niagara and they are. Have you done any articles about Canadian wine? Um, no, I have not. I did. Uh, I've done a few articles on Canadian whiskey, mm. um, but I have not ventured into the wine part of it. But I am super. I've edited a couple pieces of people that have written about Montreal. There's some really mm. cool sparkling wine up there. Um, it's a cool, yeah. And as you know, as things warm up a little bit, yeah. we'll probably be looking towards Canada for some, some wine here soon. Yeah, I know that we've got, you know, what is it? Is it Inniskillen? They're the ones that are really known mm-hmm. for their like ice vine style. But yes. I mean, I can't remember the name of the producer with Selection Massal that's really tasty Gamay, Cabernet Franc. I think it's Pearl Morset, actually. Is oh, the yeah. Name? Um, but yeah, that we good. worked with at the bar and it had like a really nice kind of like crunchy, like granular red fruit character that I really liked. Um, what's Canadian whiskey? Like, how would you define that? Like, I know you said you worked on that a little bit, but how is Canadian yeah. whiskey different than whiskey from like the States or other parts of the world? Well, it's funny because they are generally blended. It's, you mm-hmm. know, wheat, corn, um, whatever is barley, whatever is kind mm-hmm. of local with every region. But the thing is, yeah. is that there's not a lot of rules for it. So they have a lot of leeway. They can play with barrels. They can play with blends. They can um, kind of, you know, play around with what's local. They can age, you know, so you find a lot of lighter styles. You'll find a lot of, you know, and then they haven't been around for, you know, only certain major distilleries have been around for so long that they have stuff that's like 40 years old or whatever. So there's this kind of like new craft, you know, minus like the crown Royals and the, all that stuff. There's this new like craft Mm -hmm. movement and a lot of them are just kind of waiting. So I think, I think with like the maturity of the whiskey, it'll come across, but the hard part is, is that none of it really comes down here. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you have to go find it. You gotta like make people understand it. It Mm -hmm. has kind of like a bad rap, I think. But um, but they, I, I, that's I, I think it's a cool little category. No, for (laughs) sure. Do you approach like um, writing and talking about spirits differently than you approach writing and talking about uh, wine? Because like, there's a lot in common between the two things. But do you Mm -hmm. find that your perspective shifts a little bit when you're trying to like promote? you know, whether it's Canadian whiskey or some other product that maybe people don't have as much familiarity with, as opposed to like, you know, talking about an undiscovered wine region like Baja or something like that? Um, That's a good question. And it's funny because I guess I do. I think, and I also think it really depends on your audience too, because if you're, you're talking about spirits to a wine you know, a wine nerd, you kind of need to like figure out that connection. You know, you have to kind of figure out what's going to hook them. Like, is it fermentation? Is it terroir? Is it like the story of the producer, et cetera, et cetera. Or, um, and kind of trying to figure, figure how that works. Mm -hmm. Um, but there's, there's definitely, there's two separate audiences, I think. And, um, but as far as approaching it, I mean, it's really just, I mean, it's just trying to tell a, tell a story, you know, sometimes the minutia is very different and the extra step of distillation, you know, might cause a little bit, but, um, I feel like there are two very separate audiences for those two. And you have to kind of, did that make it weird at wine and spirits? Like, did it feel like there was this dichotomy in like the the magazine where it's like we have wine and we have spirits? Or did it really feel like one kind of cohesive kumbaya, we all work together sort of situation? No, the spirits are definitely separate and there's not a lot of it in the magazine. <laughs> Why wine? It's wine and spirits, but, not spirits. And uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it was very wine focused, yeah. super wine focused. And then there wasn't a lot of space per se for spirits. Um, yeah. And I covered, I kind of made sure I covered that. But the 
You did yeah. some really cool articles there and you reviewed Thanks. some really cool stuff, you know, talking a lot about like cocktails and like the way beverage managers kind of like created new drinks on their menu. You did one article about like sherry cocktails, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And I had some Texas love. I, email, yeah. I interviewed Houston. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's always been like a huge want or desire for me is to figure out um, why people don't appreciate both. Or um, I think they're starting to now, but um, why people aren't into both in the same kind of geeky way. And there's all of these overlaps. There's, Mm -hmm. you know, people using sherry in cocktails, but they don't necessarily understand, you know, the stuff that you study about sherry when you're going for like a court exam. Um, And people who study sherry for wine, you know, are kind of missing that whole like, how do you mix it in cocktails? How does the flavor profile work with other, um, other things or that kind of, you know, sherry was a really cool thing that kind of really bridged, bridged the wine and spirits world. Um, I think there's a lot of other stuff out there that does like, Mm -hmm. uh, VDNs and VDLs and Madeira and, um, fortified vermouth is what you know and mm-hmm. and a lot of that armagnac is you know a big part of their um is grape growing and mm-hmm. and they're very um so it at wine and spirits i think the the cool thing was is that you know there is this focus on kind of terroir driven um stories and i was kind of able to really flex categories that had that kind of philosophy especially in spirits as well so um and so you I, worked I in good. a kind of like cocktail space in austin before mm-hmm. you came to houston to focus on just wine right like so like cocktailing was part of your kind of just mm-hmm. like daily vernacular in your yeah. you know on-premise career right it was my first spirits were my first love i um, got to Austin and I started to get really into the bar. So I started mm-hmm. studying spirits and I started studying cocktails and that was what I did. I started learning how to make orgeats and I would be a prep bartender and, and I did all that fancy mixology stuff at my first, um, and that's kind of how I got my foot in the door at like key mm-hmm. was by being one of their opening bartenders. Mm. Um, and and then I, I always had a, I was always interested in wine. I studied wine at Fino when I was there as well. Um, but, um, that's when I got to work with June and it, mm-hmm. you know, and I was like, you know, this is a, this is something that I want to learn more about. So I started studying at the court and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, but, but I mean, my first foray besides managing a tea house here <laughs> <laughs> was, um, it was, was being behind a bar. And making up cocktails and creating cocktails. And that was kind of like the the real boom, kind of like the late aughts of, you know, cocktail culture, right? Mixology. I think when people have that like stereotype of a drink that has like 10 ingredients, it was really that time in the late 2000s, early 2010s, right? I feel mm-hmm. like it's around then. Yep. That's when I got to Austin around 2010. And um, I think it was just starting to hit hit Austin when I got there. So I really came up with a lot of really great bartenders in Austin. So I learned from people like, um, you know, Bill Norris, who kind of started the cocktail program at Fino before he went off to Alamo draft house, Houston. I worked with Brian Dressel, like all of the, it was definitely that whole, like bringing back the suspenders and the, uh, Oh yeah. Twisted mustache kind of bartending. <laughs> that was also really cool because you were in Houston and Austin, kind of mm-hmm. moving between those two cities. And, you know, I think that in this podcast, at least I've interviewed lots of people from both of those places. And it's interesting to hear the way people talk about the differences in kind of the beverage culture of both. I mean, Austin skews, I think little bit younger, there's maybe more tourism, or at least there used to be back when people traveled, you know, more tourism going to that city, you know, Houston, it was more coming here on business, you know, for conferences or conventions, you know, things like that. I think what's really cool is over the past, like three or four years, there had been a lot of work on like the PR side to get people to think about Houston as like a destination. Um, And I saw that at the bar, uh, where people would come into 
Cameron and be like, yeah, we just, you know, had heard really good things about Houston. Uh, flights and Airbnbs were cheap, so we wanted to come and spend a weekend here. Kind of the way people might go to a city like Portland or Seattle, you know, just to like eat and drink really well uh, mm-hmm. from other markets. So, yeah, I, you know, it, it's, I don't know how Austin is now. Um, I was there, I left, I was there from like 2010 to 2015. I feel like it's changed a lot since I left mm-hmm. and I haven't really been back. But at the time, like, the culinary scene was just really starting to take off in Austin. Mm. Um, I think a lot of places have closed um, since then. Um, But when I moved to Houston, it really was like a breath of fresh air. It was Mm. like um, the, the culture was very different. Um, It was, it was a big city. It was a a big city. Austin felt like a small town even. um, Mm. And it, you know, kind of, I felt it was getting really busy. People were moving in from all over. It was getting super crowded. And I think that the restaurant industry there was getting a bit saturated with all of that kind of, with everybody coming in. And Houston, I just realized had all of these just like gems of places that like, from like coffee shops to bar, like, you know, Anvil, you know, you had heard Shout of out all of Anvil, these yeah. places. Um, you had heard of all these places, they and they had a great reputation. And then I think it just really started booming. And then you saw all of these great, you have great diversity in food. Did you have a go-to BYOB, like ethnic restaurant that you love to go to? Was there one that That's like a good question Mala Sichuan or Himalaya? I, I feel like I didn't get out. Oh, we did love Mala Sichuan. We went there as a Camerata team yeah. a whole lot because it was right down the street. We did. So yes, I would probably. Um, yeah. That was probably one that I I had never made it to Himalaya, but mm-mm. no, I know. Oh man, I feel like I missed out. Well, you were you were in Houston for about. Just two years. Yeah. And then you decided to make that switch to working in bars and restaurants to writing. What was kind of like the thought process transitioning um, into that gosh, role? It was kind of a lot of um, serendipitous kind of weird universe stuff on top of always wanting to do it. Um, I had always loved mm-hmm. to write. I I was when I went to I went to school I was a musician so I and I was a songwriter and it, it just always it all oh, I didn't of, know you went to school for music no I didn't but I played music I went oh, to okay. school for philosophy okay. and when I was in school I played music and mm-hmm. was like I'm gonna be a musician when I get out when I graduate um which is what spurred my move to Austin along with some Checks friends out, there yeah. and then I ended up getting just face first into the whole restaurant thing Mm -hmm. and it kind of consumed me and all that stuff. So writing and, and kind of all this artistic stuff always kind of sat in the back of my head Mm -hmm. and I had always wanted to do it. And so, and I always wanted it to be a part of it. So I always did side jobs. Um, So even though I was working in restaurants, when I was in Austin, I worked with um, Brian Stubbs, who runs Genuine Article out of um, in Austin. He does mm-hmm. kind of uh, bookkeeping and consulting for restaurants out there. I was one of his first employees, and one of my favorite things to help him with were like business plans. Uh, you know, just kind of getting all of that yeah. writing out there. So I actually started doing that. I started writing business plans for a lot of um, restaurants that opened out in Austin. I feel like there's um, so much just like translating that needs to be done, right? You know, taking what a chef or, you know, an individual who's really passionate wants to say, and then like translating that into something coherent that can then be like packaged and presented in the form of a business plan or something else. Like, Oh, totally. It's, it's, I would interview owners and just kind of get an idea of what they were looking for and, Mm -hmm. you know, just make it straightforward so that they could use them for funding or fundraising or uh, location, finding locations, stuff like that. So I, I yeah. always did these side jobs to kind of get this writing thing out of, out of me. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I, and so I always looked for opportunities to do that paid or not paid. So I wrote the newsletter for Camerata. That was something mm-hmm. that I could do 
where I could kind of get it out of my system a little bit. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it's funny. It's funny that you're you're bringing this up now because um, I just did an, an article on um, Batonage, the forum's new mentorship program, and the whole yeah. point of that mentorship program, which I love, is that when you grow up, you, if you don't grow up in kind of a wine region or all that kind of stuff, you don't know that you can do a job in wine and spirits that is not in a restaurant. Yeah. I think that's kind of a, um, so it's funny that I, I have been promoting this for a while because there's so many jobs out there where you can take something like writing or accounting, or um, if you're good with numbers, something like that. And there is something in the wine and spirits world that can probably, that probably needs you. Yeah. But we kind of, I, I was definitely in that tunnel vision of like, oh my gosh, I am going to be working in restaurants forever. <laughs> Because this is what I love to do. This is what I want to do. Um, but I do not want to be up at two o'clock in the morning anymore. Yeah. Um, Finding how to apply like that, like passion for the product in another capacity. Yeah. So, um, so I, I, it was hard. I didn't know that any of this yeah. stuff existed. Like it, it just didn't. So I remember, you know, finding out about like the MW program, like realizing that there were other avenues out there outside of the court, you know, um, there's got there, you know, something isn't like feeling right here. So let me mm -hmm. kind of, you know, what, what's working. Um, but I left Houston randomly to move to Mexico. So that's why I left because mm -hmm. my husband works for a Mezcal company. Shout out Francisco. Francisco. He's right outside. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, you're stuck in a small space with your family. These days. <laughs> um, he uh, went down to Mexico to work on a new project. And I was yeah. like, cool opportunity. Let's go get me out yeah. of here. I need to figure out what I'm doing with my life um, on a very small budget because um, rent down there is quite cheap. Um, yeah. And uh, so I went down to Oaxaca and that's when I kind of started really sitting down and like writing things for my blog, reaching out and pitching um, to people that I knew that I had connections to. So I ended up writing something for eater, which was like, yes, I have, I have clips now. Cause that's kind yeah. of like the hard thing is like, you need a clip to get a piece, but how do I get a clip if I don't have it? You know, it's like the kind of you're rolling around in circles, but, um, um, so that was cool. And then about three or four months into my time there, my mom, um, who was in New Jersey at the time had to go into the hospital for brain surgery. She's mm. great now, no big deal, but, um, she ended up in the hospital for about five months. So I came up, um, I flew back to New Jersey and, uh, stayed. And then right. I just kind of moved in, um, hung out with my family and, uh, and that was kind of a nice, it was hard, but it was also forced me to kind of stop and say, you know, what do you want to be doing? You know, I know yeah. you, you know, you have a resume in, in bars and restaurants, but is that what you want? You know? And I was like, I don't think so. So I, I started looking at magazines and I, and stuff like that. Um, and wine and spirits had a tasting department internship, which was a great pivot um, because it required somebody who had a lot of experience in inventory and, and tasting. Um, mm -hmm. And so I got in that way. And then because I had kind of some writing already done with, you know, Eater and Collectif and some, some clips here and there, um, they kind of took a took a shot at me and let me start writing. Um, and they awesome. were excited to have a bartender on staff that could cover their spirits section of their magazine. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what, it worked out. So what was kind of like your approach when you would have a bunch of different products that I imagine are sent to you guys, and then it's figuring out which ones you want to taste for that particular issue, 
Um, is was there the desire to like have some sort of narrative like we're going to taste whiskeys this issue and next month it's going to be gins or was it split up like regionally or it was just like as product come comes in we'll taste it we'll score it we'll put it in the next issue what was kind of the approach there the wine the what the wine and the spirits were very different um mm-hmm. super different spirits um it was we did not have a calendar for it. there wasn't a lot of space for it um. Mm-hmm. I wish there were, but that just didn't happen. Um, so it was really great. So I had to do a lot of work on that end as far as like reaching out to people, finding out what new products were out there, um, you know, getting, you know, fostering relationships with uh, PR people, with distillers, with um, importers and figuring out like what was new and what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And so it was a good mix of like, me asking for stuff and also um, people promoting promoting to me through kind of yeah. our channels. They have media lists and pre- you get press releases yeah. all day, every day. <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and then, and kind of being able to pick and choose and, and, and figuring out what people are looking for. So I think having that kind of, um, dialing into the community, I think was really important as far as the spirits went. And then on that end, it was just about kind of tasting for a really kind of clean and pure, um, product. If I decided to write, um, usually the, the, um, like the, the issues were, had a focus. So if it was coming out in February, you kind of wanted to steer towards the whiskey category. If it was coming out in the summer, you did more gin, et cetera. So I would kind of look at those categories and see what it was that I was, I was excited about or, or what was happening. Like last winter, I wrote something on Irish whiskey because all of the sudden I was getting all of this inundation of like Irish whiskey. I was like, it's everywhere. All of these new bottles, <laughs> like it was just the kind of revival of Irish whiskey and just kind of putting those two together and, and figuring it out. The wine side, they have a system. They have a long, <laughs> uh, long system for it. They pick regions for each issue and um, they, they just get tons of wine tons of wine. And as the tasting director there, it was my job to also, um, put those pan, like put panels together, make sure that, you know, the 2016 Barolos were being tasted with the 2016 Barolos and being tasted in a way where alcohol wouldn't get in the way or stuff like that. So you kind of sit down and, um, and just taste, which was very different from the court. Yeah. I learned a new way of tasting. What what did you need to really adapt to in making that transition? It was it was about being more intuitive than deductive. You know, it was mm-hmm. about because you're not sitting there trying to figure out what a wine is. You already know what it is, and you're tasting it, and you're not sitting there saying medium plus acidity, medium minus body, whatever. That's not yeah. the point. That's not the point of it. Um, mm-hmm. It was great to learn how to review in a way that was like. I have a really bad reaction to this wine. Why? You know, like and ask and really getting into that and then being like, I have a really fantastic reaction to this wine. Why? You know, because yeah. it's in balance. I'm tasting the place. It's, you know, typicity. Um, and then kind of in and, and balance and length, you know, looking at all of those kind of things, um, and also being able to also look in, in a way that like, you know, uh, this wine is $12, but it's super friendly and I can totally crush this on a patio. Like, it's yeah. not like, it's not mind blowing, but there's a use for it. There's definitely a use for this wine. Um, and so you're approaching it in very different ways where in the court, you're really analytical about classic wine styles and, and what. What it's supposed to the person that writes the kind of like review, like the text, is that also the same person that assigns the numerical score? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. It's not like a pitchfork.com situation where you've got separate people deciding who does no. what. Yeah. No, no, no. Okay. Um, yeah. So you would score them. Well, you, and we did panels. So we had some <laughs> panels. So it was, it wasn't just one person kind of sitting there. There had to be like a majority, but the critic did have the final say. And, um, yeah, critic had the final say and, uh, and would write the review and then do the research after the fact to figure out who the winemaker was, how it was made, yeah. how the vintage was, et cetera. 
Well, you know, I, I don't work in print media, but I am vaguely aware of how much the pandemic has affected that industry, right? Like, what's the value of a restaurant review at a time when people can't dine out? What's the value of, you know, an exploratory, you know, 5,000 words on an emerging wine region if people can't go there, right? How have you seen these wine or beverage in general, you know, media companies transition during this, you know, pandemic time? Oof, that's a good question. So I now I work with, I'm no longer with the magazine. Now I work with the Vintner Project, mm-hmm. which is a completely different way of also looking at wine media. Um, How so? Well, there's two, I think there's two, two very different kind of thought streams. Like there's this old kind of, you know, legacy print media. And then in a pandemic, there and also for the past 10 years uh you have to go digital like that's super mm-hmm. important because you have to and you have to engage with like um social media so i think there's a lot of different i think they're edging towards two very different consumer demographics um i don't know if one is better than the other i don't know but or what will pan out anyway, but I have decided to kind of throw my eggs in the digital basket. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we've seen I- like dinosaurs like Conde kind of like try and find some sort of like balance between the two, right? But, yeah, or but wine enthusiast, which does, I think does a great job at that, um, um, at being very present online, but also available to pick up at a bookstore, which I've done. I've done both. Mm-hmm. But I think you have to have a robust um, online presence. But as far as content, you know, it's funny. I, I think 2020 has just changed the way we talk about wine and spirits in general. Like, I just think it's just, uh, it has completely like taken everything that we've known and thrown it up into the air and Mm -hmm. like completely changed the way that we talk about stuff. Um, I mean, we're starting to talk about, you know, it's funny because I have written articles in the past on things like sexual harassment in the industry, sobriety, et cetera. And now it's like, and it was so hard to get those pieces to like gain some traction. And now, I mean, you can't get enough of it. It's just Mm. all over the place, which I think is great. But I do believe that we're starting to look at like, I think, you know, talking about you know, I just put out a newsletter today that had all of these news articles that are are focusing on how things have changed in 2020 from the vineyards in Burgundy, how they've changed their yearly calendar because harvest was so came in August rather than September. Um, talking about how, you know, what are Psalms going to do now as, you know, how um, it also included, you know, the New York Times article that just came out about income inequality and how that affects you know, our ways of getting white, great wines and like mm-hmm. exponential price of some of these wines has, have grown more than any other industry. Yeah. Um, and so I think people are really starting to get a little bit more investigative and starting to kind of report on what is going on. I do see less and less of, you know, here's a wine region guide because it's hard. Cause how is that going to change or mm-hmm. how, what does that look like for a region that is not accepting tourists or, or, or that something that might look even different, but I mean, there's a lot of reporting to be done out there and a lot of, you know, stories to be told for sure. It also seems like there's just a slight movement away from kind of like these gatekeepers in media who get to decide how something should be perceived by the average person, right? Like, it seems like there's more individuals that maybe worked in print media that are starting their own newsletters, right? And it's interesting to see the way, you know, larger companies are adapting to that. But it's also really exciting to see this kind of democratizing of wine journalism, I guess, if you want to call it that, right? That like an individual, like if we go back maybe like 10, 15 years, there were like a handful of people that like maintained like interesting wine blogs. But now it seems like a lot of people have like 
individual newsletters. I don't know if you follow any like food or beverage newsletters mm-hmm. yourself. Alicia Kennedy is one that I yep. really like. Um, I there's a bunch of others that that are really rad, but I don't know if you're feeling that way where you see kind of like a broadening of kind of media in general or whether it's kind of like a removing of gatekeepers that's being done by consumers or whether that's being done by, you know, the former gatekeepers that are leaving to do their own thing. Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, And there's a a place for these legacy magazines. They have a consumer base that will not budge, you know, Mm -hmm. and they really speak to people that, that need some guidance and want a score system like that makes sense to them and that's fine. And then there's also, you know, you know, and then there's also the rise of like the influencer, (laughs) um, (laughs) which I think is kind of a slippery slope, but you probably saw that like a lot when you were with wine and spirits, right? Like from 2018 onward, I feel like that was the time that influencers were really popping off. Right. Yeah, they are now too because of the pandemic. Um, and that's, and that's fine. I think to an extent, as long as you're careful. Um, but yes, I am. And that is kind of the point. And that's why I'm so excited not to plug, but this is exactly why I'm not meaning to plug at all. I'm just very honestly excited about working with the Vintner project because we get contributors. Anybody can contribute anybody. And I get a lot of, and it is my job to weed out things, you know, or fact check things. So people are not allowed to just like post whatever they want to, yeah. um, um, without being checked a little bit, but we get contributors from all over that are, are, are going through things like W set that live in wine regions, um, that um, work in the businesses of wine and they pitch the stories that they're super passionate about. And so I've been getting the, I get the coolest pitches that even I sometimes am like, I've never heard of this person. I have um, no, I have never read an article on the Azores. Like, yes, please write that. Or, Mm. you know, yes, this Portuguese businesswoman from 1893. Yes. I want to read about like, these are the stories that I like, I, I want to hear because I'm I'm sick of reading the same listicle over <laughs> and over again or the same headline from three different sources. Um, and that's definitely something that I've seen. Um, you don't want to know the top five Barolo producers of 2016? <laughs> I mean, it's important. But Napa versus Sonoma? Yeah, exactly. you, That's not the story you want to read this time around? I'm talking more like like people telling me what to buy for Halloween to pair with my, my Milky way. (laughs) Oh, oof. Yeah. Many of those, which is important to some people and that's fine. (laughs) I guess, but, um, not my cup of tea, not at all, but, um, but that's okay. Which of these orange wines will pair with your PSL? Exactly. Um, But there's such cool stories from people that I think may not, you know, because of what I experienced starting out, because they can't get published because they can't get a clip because um, it's so hard to find contacts because um, even when you pitch some of these magazines, you know, you, you have to pitch to their voice. You have to pitch for what they need. You have to pitch for certain sections. Um, sometimes these magazines don't take feature writers. Um, they work mm-hmm. in house or in staff. And so it's really hard to break into, but there are a lot of people out there who have really, really great stories and stories that we maybe have not ever heard of because we just haven't done that. So I love being able to hear from anybody and what they're super passionate about. And I think it allows us to kind of open, open the doors to a lot of stories that are, are fun and exciting that, you know, are outside of the status quo. And I think that's, I think that's the biggest thing is talking about things. I think 2020 is definitely a year of like questioning authority. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think a lot of people are start and, and standing up for, you know, certain ways that things have been that we don't really like anymore. So, um, and I think that has definitely bled into both the wine world and how we write about it. 
Um, so you're seeing a lot more kind of controversial topics being brought up and, um, and my hope is to kind of be able to look for people who have the stories that you might not be paying attention to. Does that ever create a challenge creating a cohesive voice for Vintner project? That's a good question. Because every writer is going to bring like their own perspective, which is great. But when it comes to like having one kind of voice for the, for the site. I think just my, I, I am pretty easy. Um, I don't, I'm not a super difficult editor because I, I don't want it all to sound the same. And I think that mm-hmm. that's the, that's a huge problem with some of these other media outlets is that yeah. they do start to sound the same and it gets a little, you know, you, it gets a little droney, mm-hmm. but one thing that I, so I, I really just try and keep the mission statement in mind, like first and foremost, I mean, it's not about being nitpicky. It's just about being, making sure that this person is writing a story and making sure that it's the vendor project is about the people behind the wine and the story behind the wine. And just making sure that when you're reading this article, that the subject matter stays on the subject matter. And then the voice around it, you know, everybody has their kind of different voice and that's Mm -hmm. fine. I just try and stay away from one of our biggest rules is to stay away from kind of what could be on a blog or, or personal, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's about keeping, keeping laser focused on who you're telling a story about and keeping that focus in mind. Um, and that I think is my biggest, you know, my number one, what I look at when I'm seeing a story is like, if you're going to tell me a story about this person, I want to know the story. So give it to me. I don't want a lot of other things, you know, that, um, but if a personal narrative fits in sometimes, and it does sometimes, and it makes the story like that much, you know, kind of gives the reader a connection, then mm-hmm. great. It just think that there's a, you know, a place for it. But, and and you guys use, for the newsletter, which I know you write, you're yeah. using MailChimp. You're not using Substack or any of those other guys? It's MailChimp, yes. Yeah. I well, don't, fine. I don't yet put the things into MailChimp. <laughs> I write the text. Yeah. And send it off. <laughs> Someone else takes care of that. Exactly. That's good. Well, um, Rachel, what else do you want to let people know about, you know, the state of wine journalism in 2020 or anything else you oof. want to talk about? I have a lot of things floating in my brain. Um, gosh, you know, it's funny because I don't write a lot. You know, it's funny. I don't write out a ton. I, I've been doing a lot more editing. Um, and is that a bummer I, that you got into this for writing and now you just find yourself editing? No, I actually love it. It, yeah. um, I really do. I, um, it, it kind of actually, I, I, this is just kind of a new thing that I'm learning about myself is that I did want to write, but I'm actually really enjoying the editing process. Hmm. I'm really enjoying content creation and kind of putting, uh, things together. Although I do get my writing out there. One of the newsletter is one of my favorite things to write um, because I get to do whatever I want. I get to just be me and say what I think and um, put things out there and just be funny and, and, and involve pop culture and, and not take it too seriously, which at the end of the day, (laughs) you know, you got to keep perspective, but um but I am really excited. I just think people need to be, um, I think with the state of wine journalism, I just think people need to stay like diligent. What I'm learning is that like, you don't always have to believe what everybody else is saying. You can find other sources. You can, you know, I, I read something, I read a couple things about like scores like scores, a hundred point score system. I think Jamie Good wrote something about like, I can't wait for the person that's going to give something a 105 point score and yeah. like change the whole thing. And then I read a little piece about like how sure you can take a score. Cause these people who are critics have been doing this for a very long time and dedicated their lives to it. But the important thing is that you do the research and make sure that these critics, you know, have the, have the kind of, um, 
same ideas that you do and the same values and just keeping that in mind. And um, I think taking on personal responsibility as a reader right now, I think is super important and figuring out kind of who you trust and, and um, who you want to get your, your wine news from. And, and it seems like um, people have more of an ability to do that now than they ever did before. Like if I don't want to get my wine news from, you know, food and wine, that's fine. I can go to any number of websites. I can go to any number of like newsletters. You know, I can truly find the voice that speaks to me specifically, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I, I mean, also being super careful and understanding that sometimes magazines get paid to say stuff, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. um, and so you really just have to do your own research. There's a sense of business, but you know, being really diligent and, and paying attention to who you listen to and asking yeah. questions and, um, you know, changing the status quo. I wrote something recently about just kind of the way that people talk about wine, um, as far as in the pandemic and how you're, how people are drinking and how people are drinking at like incessant amounts right now. And, and, that's something you're talking to one of those people. I mean, I've, <laughs> I've drank a, a quite a fair bit. So, and, um, and I, I, you know, I definitely have, I'm a big advocate of, you know, like taking care of your mental health and your wellness. And, and I have, um, cut down my drinking. I've actually stopped for a while. Um, Good for you. That's awesome. I, yeah, because, I wish I could have done that <laughs> because it just was tight. Cause you know, I had to look at what I, my relationship with alcohol versus like what the industry told me my relationship with alcohol should be both mm -hmm. as a journalist, but also as a consumer. Um, and I had to really focus in on, on what that looked like. And I, so I think the responsibility that we have of like keeping journalists also in check too, like, I think is super important. And, um, so I think conversation is important and, and taking responsibility and doing your research and figuring out what works for you is all, are all important things in life and in wine journalism. <laughs> or spirits journalism or whatever. <laughs> well, I know you said you've cut back on a lot of your drinking, but what was the last thing that you drank wine-wise um, or spirits-wise, alcohol-wise, we'll say? Well, I have been doing the NA stuff, which I'm mm. totally into. Um, and I, I'm all about it. I, I yeah. you know there's a lot of people out there that are like, ugh, no, no, no. I, so like I struggle with non-alcoholic drinks in large part because I find that so often it's, you know, really sweet. Um, and it's like, I don't want to drink alcohol, but I don't necessarily want to take in another like 30 grams of sugar, you know? Yeah. Um, so like for me, it might be like a kombucha. Like that's, if I find myself reaching for a, uh, a glass of wine or like cracking open like a can of cider or something like that, you know, I try and maybe look for kombucha as that alternative. Yeah. But like for you, are what sort of like non-alcoholic drinks or cocktails are you, are you going for? That's a good question. Well, you know, it's funny. I haven't even done that in a while, but I have a few, I love seed lip. I love them. That is the and, distilled, uh, like botanical, right? Is that yeah, what it is? Yeah. They have, um, they, I'm trying to think they're, I think based in England, if mm. I'm not mistaken. And, um, they, they do all of these kind of botanical ones. And I had this martini at a spot. It was an NA martini. It was mm. so good. It totally yeah. like hit the spot. And I'm really into the idea that, um, just because it's NA does not mean that it does not have flavor. Like, because a lot of us in the wine and spirits industry, we get into it not because it's alcohol, not because it gets you. I mean, part might be part of it. That's a little but, bonus. I mean, that's the silver lining. That's the bonus. But the yeah. excitement of it is, you know, the agriculture, the people, the flavor profiles, the texture, the kind of food ways about it. And all of that is possible without 
the consequence if you don't want it. Some people do, mm-hmm. some people don't. But um, being able to like recreate those flavors, um, I think it's just such an interesting experiment. Um, yeah. That's also making, you know, a healthier choice sometimes. Um, well, Rachel, let people know where they can find you and where they can find the Vintner Project. Ooh, um, that's a good question. The Vintner Project is at thevintnerproject.com. Um, and there, or Vintner Projects, you can do the Vintner Project or vintnerproject.com. Um, mm-hmm. And you can see all of our writing up there and sign up for our wine newsletter. Um, and we also have some really, really cool projects coming in 2021. Um, awesome. Yeah, we've been running this Changemakers newsletter, which focuses on people who um, are in the industry. So different initiatives, um, you know, for social impact, basically, Mm -hmm. if people are doing things for either, you know, you can find just um, products that are, you know, from black owned businesses or doing things for climate change or stories on, you know, mentorship programs, for instance, or things that are helping. We just did one on um, uh, an auction for ACLU of Texas. Um, so we write about that kind of stuff and you can see it on the website, but we have some cool projects. And then they're also, um, on Instagram at, uh, the Vintner project. And I'm on Instagram at Rachel Dalrocco. You can find a lot of my links to my own website, my pieces, and all that good stuff. Love it. What's one piece that you're really excited about right now that you've written that listeners of the podcast want to find out. I'm really proud of the stuff that I've written for recently, the stuff for change makers. Um, Cause I, I've focused on the Batonage mentorship program and the vines for votes. Those have been um, really, really fun for me because I find that I more so enjoy these types of topics and writing about these types of talk topics. Um, a little bit more so than I do like writing tasting notes. <laughs> um, so those are really fun. And if you go, I mean, if you go back into my clips, I have, you know, I'm really proud of some stuff I wrote on like Armagnac and um, things like that. So hell yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for hanging out. Oh my gosh. It was so fun to chat. Cool, dude. Thank you so much. Appreciate hey, it. Thanks. All right. Big thanks to Rachel and big thanks to you for listening to another episode of By the Glass. You can stream every episode ever um, on Apple, Spotify, Google, all those streaming platforms, even the ones like Stitcher and uh, iHeartRadio. We're we're global, as uh, DJ Khaled might say, but please do subscribe and uh, keep Keep, keep your eyes and ears open. We've got an addendum to this episode coming out uh, tomorrow, actually. So, uh, yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.